When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to the Boyce of Reason podcast. My cat clawed my nose, but if you're just listening to the audio, that shouldn't distract you too terribly much. Today's guest is Christopher Rufo, who is a journalist and a documentarian. He has been covering homelessness across the western seaboard in Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. He's also been covering what's been going on within government with regards to the spread of critical race theory through various different trainings at the municipal and the federal level. We talk about what is happening in Seattle and in Portland with regards to the ways in which there's kind of a loss of authority with regards to the treatment of protesters, the way that kind of anarchy is being spread through these different cities up and down the West Coast. And we also talk about the values behind that and his values of more positive relationship towards tradition. This is a great conversation. He's doing some amazing work, so check the links in the description. And without further ado, here is Christopher Rufo. It seems like you've been covering homelessness for some time now. Yeah, yeah, about two years. So, yeah. What inspired you to look into that? Um, You know, living in Seattle and thinking about, you know, policy problems and thinking about, you know, even my own experience and watching the city kind of just collapse on itself. Um, and at that time, it's changed in the last few months. Um, Hasn't you know, been? with, well, I mean, homelessness is worse than ever, but I mean, the, it's probably not the top policy issue right now. Um, mm-hmm. It's, you know, the police and the riots and the unrest and COVID. But prior to that, homelessness was just, I mean, it was the big issue um, and nobody was covering it with any kind of intelligence or, you know, kind of uh, challenging any of the orthodoxies. So Mm -hmm. um, that's how I got started. There's, uh, it seems to be a refrain along the Western seaboard. It seems like Seattle, Portland, Olympia, San Francisco, LA too, all kind of have similar problems with regards to homelessness. Uh, yeah. Do you you see, is there a theme, uh, like a, a value that is kind of fueling the, the problem? Yeah. I mean, you know, I've covered, I did a big feature on LA. I've done Seattle. I've done San Francisco. I have one coming out actually on Olympia, um, looking at mental illness particularly. And it's just permissiveness. I mean, there's no other way to talk. There's no other way to kind of cut it. It's centralization of services and an unwillingness to enforce the law. And when you combine those two things, the centralization and the liberalization, um, you you just create these kind of havens and magnets. So, you know, most of the people in Seattle, for example, tell survey takers that they are not from Seattle. They came to Seattle after they became homeless somewhere else. So, mm-hmm. so I mean, you know, that's that's probably seventy percent of the problem. Just the incentives. That permissiveness is a interesting concept. It seems like that is also kind of fueling the ways in which the uh, rioters are taking advantage of protest. Uh, 
because it doesn't seem no. like uh, there, there's uh, authority. It seems like the West Coast has a problem with authority or leniency. I, I don't know how to, how to frame it. Yeah, I, I think authority is probably the right word because you, you, you essentially have a a political system that that you know, you have political leaders rather that are more comfortably being activists than they are, you know, statesmen uh, or leaders. So they kind of instinctively side with the activists, even though they're in charge of the government. Mm-hmm. So there's really like when you have activists outside and activists inside, um, there's no counterbalance. There's no check. There's no limit. Hmm. Um, and they just go as far as they can. It's interesting uh, that you bring that up because it seems like there is somewhat of a limit because up in Seattle, uh, the council made overtures to defund the police by 50%. And the number that I read, and I haven't checked this, but it seems like they they reduced the the police budget by less than 1%. Um, But one member of the council, uh, Kashama Sawant, she wants it completely divested. She wants to take all the money from Amazon and put it all into housing. Uh, So it seems like they do have some sort of breaks with the radicals. Yeah, well, it's complicated. Yes. In the, in the short term, they weren't able to do the full defunding for a lot of different reasons. Um, but I think starting in September, when they start working on the actual budget for next year, it's going to be a different story. Um, and how, how do you read. see that shaking out? Well, you know, at the beginning of a budget season, you have a lot more flexibility than trying to kind of halfway through the year trim and cut. So they cut some of the programs and departments they didn't like, the ones that they really have been gunning after for years. Um, They got rid of those, but I I just don't see any hesitation. You have... I think seven or or now maybe even eight out of nine that have committed to cutting the budget 50%. And the activists are literally banging down their doors every night at like two in the morning, you know, rousting these council members out of bed and saying, if you don't cut the police budget 50%, we're here. We're going to come back. Hmm. I mean, so the street energy and the political energy are all towards larger cuts in the future. And they're framing this as not moderation, but as a down payment on future cuts. Hmm. Hmm. So how do you see this changing? Or do you think it's just going to keep continually progress? Yeah, I mean, will it will it continually progress forever? I don't know, but I, I think that if you look in the short to medium term, um, it will progress. And I think that the the issue, and actually, honestly, this surprised even me, hmm. um, was that they did a poll last week, I believe, and fifty three percent of Seattle voters support cutting the police budget by fifty percent. Okay. So, I mean, it's a majority point of view, and that gives the council kind of po- like political cover, cover with voters, cover with activists. There doesn't seem to be anything. It's not public opinion. It's not um, voter sentiment. It's not kind of moderates. It's not the business community. It's not the old statesman. It's not the police chief. Um, there seems to be nobody putting the brakes on and nobody mm-hmm. that can really stand in the way of the machine. And the machine right now is rolling fast and hard, and they're not going to stop. And what's fueling that from your uh, perspective? Just kind of pure revolutionary fervor. I mean, they really have been kind of discussing this intellectually and in kind of marginalized activist circles. 
And this is their big moment. They can capitalize on the lockdowns. They can capitalize on the George Floyd riots. And now they're finally seeing the potential for revolution. And and when you see that, that kind of glimmer, um, they're just going full speed and nothing is going to stop them. That's the attitude. That's the energy that I'm seeing. So if we look at the homelessness example of uh, the homeless migrate to where it's lenient to be homeless, uh, if won't that just basically, if, if we ratchet that up to a, a non-police state, I don't know what they're going to replace the police with. I guess that's the next step to go. But isn't that going to attract more and more anarchists or more and more people who uh, are looking for uh, no rules, no laws, and then how that how how will that shake out uh, when you have a society filled with that kind of behavior in people? I mean, it's already happened. All you have to do is look at the arrest records in Portland, for example. Um, and if you look at the anarchists and Antifa and the rioters, um, if you just go through the arrest records and you at, you kind of find out where people are actually from, uh, a large percentage of them are not from Portland, Oregon. Uh, they've come from outside because they say, you know, I may not be able to start the kind of anarchist uh, revolution in, you know, Toledo, Ohio, but it's really happening in Portland. I can stay with so-and-so. I know someone from the internet. I met this person. We're all going to chip in on an Airbnb. And they kind of have migrated to where the fight is um, easiest to win. And I mean, good for them. That's kind of, that's their modus operandi. That's their kind of strategic objective. And it's really not surprising in any way that they would be migrating towards the places that are both least risky, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to get arrested and immediately released in Portland. Um, And then also the greatest chance for success, however they define it. Hmm. Do you see anything happening from the top down? Like any, is this uh, facilitating anybody's, uh, you know, benefit beyond just the the groundswell revolutions, revolutionaries? Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely does. In all of these places, um, you know, this is this has become a big industry. Um, If you look at the kind of interconnected sectors of homelessness, of addiction services, of uh, kind of uh, public housing and community-supported kind of nonprofit housing. Uh, If you look at what they're calling restorative justice programs, diversion programs, um, there's an entire multi-billion dollar industry in each of the major cities that is predicated on ideological support uh, that's predicated on large amounts of public funding and is also predicated on uh, kind of creating w- what I think of as a almost a shadow government where you have uh, a kind of nonprofit uh, industrial complex uh, yeah. that runs essentially parallel programs to the government, but they do so in a way that they limit their um, requirements for reporting, uh, they limit their accountability, they limit even getting basic information. So if you have someone who is diverted from the criminal justice system and placed in nonprofit supportive housing and rehabilitation programs and what they call peace circles and community development, um, you know, that individual could be generating hundreds of thousands of dollars in nonprofit contracts that are invisible to the public and in no way accountable uh, to any kind of legitimate uh, public authority. 
Um, and and that's what's at stake. I mean, this is big, big business. Um, you know, you have kind of homelessness service providers that are raising, you know, three, four hundred million dollars to build. From where? Where does that money come from? The government? Federal, state, local uh, governments and private philanthropy and corporate philanthropy. Okay. And it's just this kind of giant money suck. And, you know, and as, essentially as the problems get worse, the demand for their services goes up. So from a purely kind of business and supply and demand point of view, um, these are highly incentivized. I mean, it's it's not a surprise that when you get in this vicious cycle um, that, you know, more problems are actually, you know, more business. If the money's coming from the people, I guess they can rely on the federal government, but I, I see it shaking out that the city will be losing its workers because professionals aren't going to necessarily want to cohabitate with criminals. Uh, one would assume maybe they do, or maybe they, they have no problem with that. But they're gonna the the, the people who are paying the taxes are going to go away, and then you're just going to have these kind of encampments or something. Have you like worked out how it's going to operate down the road, or do you think that they are completely blind and just kind of in the fervent rush of getting as much as they can right now? I mean, it, it's still pretty early, but I think that if you look at the COVID pandemic, um, and then if you look at corporate policy regarding work from home, and then you also look at the what I think is not hyperbolically a collapse of public order in these big cities. You're already seeing initial reports of kind of out-migration, especially among people who are in that top 1% to 10% of the income bracket. Um, I I think that's going to accelerate. I mean, uh, why wouldn't it? If you can't go to the office, you can't go to the restaurants, you can't go to concerts, um, you know, is it, and then, you know, there are tents in your neighborhood that don't get removed and you start to feel unsafe, um, and then the kids aren't aren't able to even go to school to the public uh, education system. Why would you pay the enormous premium to live in a kind of prestige American city? So I think that calculation is happening, and you're seeing reports coming out. But I think m- more deeply, like you're not going to get everyone's not going to leave, and there's going to be some very affluent people that are stuck there or want to remain there or have some sort of ties whether it's business or corporate and they want to be a you know if you're a vice president at amazon you're probably not going to leave seattle you're going to suck it up because you're making a million five a year uh and what happens there is something that i've written about is that you really start then seeing almost like a third world social system emerge where you have literal favelas uh kind of organized, large-scale tent cities uh, throughout a city like Seattle or Portland or Los Angeles. And then what you have are kind of walled compounds and um, and kind of privately protected affluent neighborhoods. I mean, I was on the phone with a, 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 a friend today uh, who's, you know, uh, very successful, very affluent. And uh, and he said, yeah, you know, the neighbors uh, in my neighborhood, you know, we're, we're trying to make some calls to see what it takes to get, you know, private security deployed in our very affluent neighborhood. So what you'll get is that you'll get kind of a private police force that's protecting the affluent. And then you'll get kind of this kind of de- hyper deregulated society at the bottom, whether it's either tent encampments or poor neighborhoods that are. Uh, either dominated by armed gangs uh, or these kind of 
almost kind of shadow police force of the nonprofit organizations. And that's something that's already happening. And I think it's, um, it's happening in a kind of, uh, kind of a, a, a very basic form right now, but uh, you, you can really see that happening um, on a bigger scale fairly quickly. Do you, where does where does the middle go? Do they yeah. they're the ones who leave then? I think so. Yeah, I think yeah. I think some of the very affluent people, like if you're living in San Francisco and and or New York, and you're paying, you know, fifty plus percent of your income in taxes, and you have the opportunity to 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 leave and go to florida and 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 be a king uh you're gonna have that that's the kind of the aristocratic class uh you know they don't really need to move they can afford the taxes they can insulate themselves from some of the disorder but you will get some purely economic moves there but i think like the middle is really hard i i don't know i mean i i know that if you know if, if, if I had, if I was uh, in the middle income bracket and have a family, have kids, I mean, you've got to be out of your mind to try to live in San Francisco or Seattle or Los Angeles. Um, you know, if it's for social reasons or if it's for security reasons or if it's for economic reasons, everything is basically flashing red at this point to hmm. get out. Mm-hmm. So it seems like you're dedicating a lot of your energy as I have, we, we have overlapping kind of reportage that we do. You seem to be calling out and at least detailing the ways in which uh, these NGOs are operating the way that homelessness is operating. And you're, uh, you know, you're watching kind of your, your storytelling uh, kind of go forward because the entire West coast is going down a certain track. What are you, what's animating you um, positively? What, what do you perceive yourself fighting for? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question. You find yourself oftentimes just feeling like you are uh, in a kind of political and social world where uh, things are going very differently uh, than you'd like them to go. And the best that you can do is serve as a kind of circuit breaker or safety valve or dam uh, trying to hold back the tide. So I think that kind of from the environment, that's probably the dominant posture that I find myself in. My colleagues, you know, find themselves in. Um, but I think that, you know, if you kind of pull that thread through and you try to say, well, what is that thing that is the kind of the positive value? Um, you know, it, it's it's sometimes difficult to discern, but I, I, I've become more and more convinced that you have to figure out um, how to personally live a good life and mm. how to secure your own kind of um, uh, good society wherever you find it. And even if it's a very small scale thing and you try to fight for to preserve and protect that above all else. And then also really kind of live by example and demonstrate um, a, a different way. Um, you know, even if you say, you know, at this point right now for, for, for the time being losing the political battles, um, hmm. trying to find something that is a value and a way of life, uh, worth, uh, protecting, preserving and perpetuating that's personally meaningful to you. And I think that that's like a, a lot of where the fight is to create some kind of, kind of, alternative, some kind of opt-out, some kind of escape hatch, even psychologically and socially and Mm -hmm. personally. And I think that's a pretty exciting um, endeavor. And it's something I talk less about. It's it's a bit, um, 
it's not really like fodder for the headlines. It's not yeah. really the tweets that, you know, hit 10,000 retweets. It's not really, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the Fox news hit. Um, and I think that if you talk too much about it, you can kind of, it, it turns from the personal into something that is more explicitly political and antagonistic. But, um, yeah, I try to, I try to create a, a good environment for my family, for my friends, for my community. And, uh, and I, I personally find myself uh, continually, continuously inspired by the kind of ideas and principles uh, that are maybe considered the, the traditional American values. And mm-hmm. I think that um, um, having moved a lot politically over the last decade, I think I'm finally finding myself comfortable with just explicitly saying it, is that that kind of traditional American way of life, while not perfect and has evolved over the years, is still something that has the fundamentals and a kind of platonic ideal um, that is worth uh, fighting for, mm-hmm. that's worth protecting, and that's worth, um, if need be, being kind of uh, aggressively fighting off people who would be um, out to kind of destroy uh, that way of life. Yeah, sometimes explicitly. And, uh... Yeah, very explicitly. And that's the thing, you know, it's honestly, it's been kind of refreshing where. The last, you know, five years ago, I, you know, you couldn't say that because, well, you're exaggerating, you're crazy. Um, last December, I wrote a, a piece for City Journal that got picked up widely called Abolish the Police? Question mark. And uh, and the, 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 the piece was basically saying, hey, look, there's all this academic literature about abolish the police. There's a new rising kind of cohort of activists in these big cities like Chicago and New York and Seattle and San Francisco that are explicitly advocating for abolishing the police. And we should take this seriously. This is a really awful idea that is very close to power. And people mm. said, that's crazy. You're insane. Uh, you're a fear monger. I mean, all the kind of you're, a, uh, what is it? The sky's falling, chicken little or whatever. Yeah. And lo and behold, not even six months later, um, multiple cities, major cities in the United States are defunding the police in part or entirely abolishing their existing departments. I mean, in a sense, it's valuable, right? Because the ideas that were latent before are now explicit. So you have people that are are saying before, oh, you can't call me a Marxist. I'm just a progressive. And now they're saying, actually, I am a Marxist. I want Marxism. This is my explicit political platform. And for me, it's refreshing. It's like, all right, let's do this. Let's go. (laughs) You know? Were yeah. you a progressive then uh, 10 years ago? Uh, is that where you said you moved around a lot? Were you more on the left side? Yeah, the- I was I was probably on the left, um, at, at least kind of uh, stylistically and uh, mm. and kind of um, in a very uh, kind of shallow way on the left from probably about the age of 13 um, to about 20. Um, so kind of uh, high school and through college and then really shifted in college. I was a part of some of the kind of leftist organizations in, on campus at Georgetown. And, uh, and you know, if anything turned me off from the left, it was the people in the left. And, uh, you know, spending time with some of these like uh, these kind of radical chic elements going to, you know, one of the, you know, one of the most expensive private colleges in the United States. And they're kind of in the back rooms, you know, smoking, uh, cigarillos and, uh, and, and reading Che Guevara, uh, you know, guerrilla tactics, uh, handbooks. Um, yeah. 
I mean, you couldn't find an almost more farcical and ridiculous and phony hmm. group of people. Hmm. And I think that was really the moment where I was disillusioned, really on personal grounds. Hadn't studied the theories um, in, in any great depth. And that really started me on a, a, a long journey to figure out, all right, well, if these people are full of, you know, these people are full of it and these people are total phonies and their ideology is like a, a skin deep caricature of some 1968 political program. What do I believe? You know, mm. what are the other alternatives? And, uh, and then, you know, I embarked on a, a decade of traveling around the world, making documentaries for PBS and other broadcasters. Um, you know, I saw 70 countries around the world, um, examine their societies and systems and governments. Uh, and then, you know, spent time hitting the books, uh, you know, reading the great works of uh, political theory and philosophy and contemporary social science. Um, and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and still, and honestly, still on that journey, really. I mean, there's mm -hmm. just like, as I get older, I just realize the more that's out there. And I kind of like, despair because i'm not going to have time to to read all of it and to understand mm -hmm. all of it um and i i find myself still you know even though i have what i think is a pretty stable political belief system i, I find myself constantly surprised by some of the stuff i find and read mm. do you think that there's uh, room for a middle ground anymore uh it seems like what we have with the trump presidency is at least in this corridor and what happened at evergreen was that they cast president trump as this alt-right demagogue uh you know hitler adjacent kind of thing and and they use that specter in order to foment and justify their own radicalism and it seems like uh, the way that the rhetoric runs in the leftist corridor is that you're either with the program or you're basically complicit with, you know, fascism and stuff. How do you, how do you carve out a middle ground when that is kind of like the, the framing? It's very difficult. I think you've, you, you're exactly right where you have, I mean, it, it's all embodied in the concept of anti-racism that has become kind of ubiquitous lately where um, it's not enough to be not racist. Um, neutrality on these issues is actually complicit in racism. Um, and even if you don't have any racist beliefs or behaviors or attitudes, um, if you don't actively engage in our kind of hard left political program, you are by definition racist. Mm -hmm. So it's an us versus them. I mean, you know, it, it's kind of like, a, a, you know, President George W. Bush said, you're either with us or against us. Yeah. And he was mocked for that, I think rightly, um, in, in some ways. And now you have the kind of mirror image of that is the, the left is saying you're either with us or against us. Yeah. And you're either anti-racist or racist. You're either anti-fascist or fascist. And they've done a good job. I mean, it helps to have, you know, the, the, the organs of the media kind of just pumping out, you know, millions of pages of, 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 you know, essentially ideological material um, over the last five years. Uh, but that's how the debate is framed, I think, unfortunately, in a lot of ways. I know in Seattle, like the the worst place to be or San Francisco or New York is a moderate. I mean, nobody look, you have no institutions that are backing you up. You have no media that is backing you up. It is a lonely, dangerous and precarious place to be. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's some kind of hope for some kind of phantom moderates. But I think at this point, it's like it, it truly is like you have to um, you, you have to almost seek protection 
whether you're on either side, where you have to basically, if you want to be politically active, um, you have to make sure that you are not going to be kind of exposed and, uh, you know, without allies and vulnerable. And, you know, the, the dominant energy is behind these kind of left and right um, political movements. And, you know, I, I personally, and again, people can disagree, that's fine. Uh, maybe there's an alternate way. I'd love to learn about it. But even personally, I think I've, you know, uh, just felt like, well, you know, I'm more of a moderate, I'm more of a centrist, I think that there's compromise, I think that if you get kind of level-headed people and neighbors and businesses, uh, there could be kind of, a, um, you know, a, a third way. Um, but it's never materialized. It's hmm. never materialized. Hmm. That's just not the kind of moment we're in. Okay. So you've been involved in the media for, uh, would you say, a decade or so now? Yeah, a bit longer, yeah. And, and over the last five years, it's really changed. What, what was that like to witness that as somebody involved in the media? You know, it, I had the kind of weird um, position where I am a, a, a political conservative and had been working exclusively in a very progressive and very ideological field, documentary filmmaking. Hmm. Um, so I kind of saw things change from the inside. And um, it, it, I, I watched when I started... Um, people are interested in good stories. People are interested in great narratives. People are interested in good filmmaking as far as technique. Yeah. Um, and then by the end of it, when I really realized, oof, I better get out of this. I better not have my livelihood dependent upon this industry. Um, uh, it was basically the reward system was all ideological in nature. Okay. I mean, you could have a film that was, you know, not very well crafted technically, uh, didn't have a particularly new or interesting storyline. Uh, but those films were essentially, you know, getting kind of uh, catapulted to the forefront because of their explicit ideological message. Yeah. And, and you know, I don't have that ideology. And I had done some conferences and events and kind of, uh, you know, f fellowships or trainings. And I saw the ideology coming in in a heavy way about five years ago where the whole documentary industry was really kind of um, conforming to um, identity politics, the structure of identity politics, and the reward system of identity politics. And, uh, you know, I basically kept my mouth shut for many years, just kind of like, all right, well, I'm not really a political person. I'm doing films that are not explicitly political in nature. So I'll kind of just hold my peace and let people kind of have their own opinions. It's fine. I can, I'm a I'm kind of a strong enough person where I can hear someone saying something I disagree with without like losing my cool or being upset about it. It's like yeah. basic, you know, kind of decency and, and kind of tolerance. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm also someone who is, uh, you know, I, I, I think quite clever and can see things unfolding a bit, a, a bit before the next guy. Mm -hmm. And I realize that this industry is basically going to collapse in on itself, making, niche films that have no broad audience that only please the activist gatekeepers and okay. eventually uh when people find out you know m my own views or as i became more vocal with my own views um there'd be little place uh for me and it turned out to be true you know i worked with a lot of people for many years and they found out oh you're kind of a, a center-right political conservative um you know 
wouldn't wouldn't work on my projects anymore. Uh, oh. Wouldn't you know you know didn't want to uh, you know work together or associate. Some of the funders that I had that were kind of repeat funders, uh, I couldn't even get calls back. Uh, you know, be, and and really solely because of this ideological question. Yeah. And um, it it really is amazing. Like the 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 world of documentary, the world of the arts is is very unified. Um, and uh, it has been for a long time. And I think that if uh, it, it provided me a valuable experience and perspective and knowledge, but at the same time, really required me to make a big jump um, starting about five years ago to, oh, yeah. to get out. Yeah. And so you kind of w- went your own way and had to start basically from scratch then? You know, you're never starting from scratch, right? You always have life and experience and and relationships and and you know, luckily, I, my my last uh, film that I made as a pure documentary filmmaker was very very successful. You know, we mm. we grossed a 1.5 million dollars, so I had wow. quite a bit of money in the bank. So I was really at this like luxurious position where at the time I was, uh, you know, single, highly mobile, uh, had a lot of kind of liquid uh, kind of capital in the bank um and i i really just went on this journey to make an explicitly political film um about three of america's poorest cities and uh was able to basically start start it by bankrolling it myself for the first few months of production and then i found alternative funders Uh, i found family foundations and very wealthy people who uh, were more aligned with my message and my point of view um and and then, you know, from there, started building a kind of alternative uh, filmmaking structure, started doing policy research, started writing for a City Journal and a publication uh, out of the Manhattan Institute in New York, and was able to, honestly, like, just from a pure kind of career point of view, um, to do something that was, you know, felt like I was fighting a, a downhill battle, Instead of fighting an uphill battle, huh. things uh, all of a sudden became very easy for me. Things like raising money became uh, almost effortless. Um, getting kind of uh, into the kind of um, uh, you know the, the the community felt fun. It felt like I was making good relationships. It felt like I could be my authentic self. Um, hmm. And then also the work that I was doing because it was from this unique point of view as a kind of documentary filmmaker, as a as someone who is kind of not your typical uh, conservative, um, I, I, I was able to find kind of some interesting kind of patrons and supporters and mentors and make this big transition. Um, and, uh, and it really, you know, just changed. And I think that to your previous question, it, it, it has some bearing on it where whereas you try so hard to be kind of in the middle and making everyone happy and really no one likes you and you don't get any kind of, uh, you know, kind of, kind of support from anyone. Uh, you know, once I kind of felt, okay, my journey is kind of complete at least up to this point and I can, um, more explicitly and, 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 and truthfully and authentically align myself, uh, with people who are in this kind of intellectual conservative world, um, man, things just got better. I felt hmm. uh, just supported and uh, and um, and excited and connected with a bigger mission and connected with something larger than myself. Uh, and I thought that that was just great. And I'm kind of riding that wave uh, as we hmm. speak. 
There's this interesting um, observation that the people who want to control discourse used to be on the right, but now they're on the left, like the the prudes and the the censors and stuff like that. Has that been your experience going from the documentary uh, film industry or like that that network uh, to to this other network? Where are you more free to explore different ideas and to to pick things up and and turn them around, whereas before you kind of had to go along. Uh, a certain prescribed path and on the left side of things or dealing with the left? Yeah. You know, I, you know, I, I guess yes and no. In, in, in my previous kind of life as a pure documentary filmmaker, I didn't really make explicitly political films. I did a film about the Uyghur minority of China. I guess that's pretty political. Hmm. Although I like to think that good people in the United States on both sides agree that uh, putting a, an ethnic and religious minority in concentration camps is a horrible abuse. Hmm. Um, so there's kind of, it's political, but not political in the sense that it's not like a kind of partisan issue, uh, at least at the time. I made a film about Mongolian nomads. Again, no one really cares what Mongolian nomads are up to politically. Um, it's not really a political thing. It's more of a kind of cultural piece. Um, and then I did a film about people up to 100 years old that compete in Olympic sports. So again, like very kind of politically neutral, fun, funny documentary. Um, but but certainly, I mean, I, I think the accepted discourse was quite narrow. I mean, you go to a documentary conference and, uh, I mean, you know, you have your kind of washed out 1960s kind of campus radical folks uh, that are the, kind of the older generation. And then you have these young kind of hungry, aggressive ideologues that have realized that the economy of the documentary world is explicitly and almost now solely predicated on identity issues. So those are the wedge that drives. And, uh, and I saw that and, you know, tried to have kind of polite disagreements with some folks in some of the public forums. But I realized quickly, like, this is not a place for dialogue. Um, oh. This is a place for kind of sermonizing. Um, and on the other side, in the conservative world, I think there's much more openness to experimentation. I, I, I found that the more um, kind of unvarnished and bold uh, that my arguments and kind of theses have become, uh, um, people are actually quite open to it and, uh, and, and actually curious. I think conservatives have woken up to the fact that, that they control none of the kind of information world. I mean, the media, academia, um, what I think of as epistemology-making institutions yeah. are now exclusively progressive. Yeah. And I think conservatives are like, whoa, what happened? We went from, you know, Ronald Reagan, the face of the actors union and the you know, kind of war bonds movies to now like this totally kind of fragmented and disintegrated cultural world. And I think that because of that, conservatives are now realizing we need to be more um, essentially open minded uh, and we need to have a bigger tent and be more tolerant and and be more kind of expansive in our thinking. And uh, I, I, I really feel like uh, if you look at the arguments of the left, they're kind of recycled and reheated versions of arguments from 1969. Hmm. Uh, whereas the kind of current intellectual discourse in the conservative world is something that is much more kind of rich in variation and debate and discussion. Um, and, and, and consequently, is, a, is kind of an interesting uh, place to be. What do you think is an inflection point w with regards to something that's really interesting that, the, that you see a lot of conservatives wrangling with? Well, I, I think uh, the kind of if you look at it big picture, you know, the kind of conservative and you could say the political kind of 
Republican world was stuck in kind of 1980s style Reaganism. And it was free markets, free trade, um, anti-communism, peace through strength. Like just to kind of very, very succinctly sum it up. And I think conservatives have realized, oof, that was maybe good then. It's pretty not really applicable now uh, with Donald Trump kind of taking over the conservative political party um, with a message that was not 80s Reaganism. People said, wow, what are what are we missing? What are we kind of what about our our kind of our traditional message is is not working. And then people have gone on a kind of a, a, a kind of a big chase to figure out what like what should we replace this with? Where should we go? What's new? What's better? What works? What doesn't work? What should we abandon? What should we recover? What should we pull through? And there's a lot. I mean, you look at like the debate on free trade. All of a sudden, you now have two sides of that debate within the conservative world. Um, if you look at the debate on um, foreign policy, on China, on uh, manufacturing policy, on family policy, on taxes, I mean, um, on, on social issues. I mean, the kind of conservative arguments are slowly waking up um, and then trying to become kind of relevant to the current world. And I think, hmm. unfortunately, they hadn't been relevant for a long time and was one of the main reasons that it, it was hard for the kind of conservative movement or or conservative intellectuals to, to draw in younger people um, because younger people, I think, correctly uh, judged it as kind of stodgy and backward looking and ossified and, and, and kind of um, old. And, uh, yeah. and I think that you're seeing now something that is emerging that is very different. Well, almost by definition, tradition is old. How do you reinvigorate that? How do you make it lively and fresh? Yeah, it, it, you know, it's a paradox, right? It's like, uh, it, it, and that's the thing with tradition, because the, the kind of simplistic argument against tradition is like, well, all of these bad things were at one time traditional. So do you think those are all good yeah. things? And it's like, well, no, uh, you know, the, the kind of mature view of tradition is comes mm. from the, the root Latin word to hand down or to pass down. Um, so it's it's very much a generation to generation transmission, not of everything, but of the best in culture and history and aesthetics and ethics. So it's really the discretion of the of the individual and then the society to figure out what is it that we want to hand down. Because let's face it, like the other side, the kind of progressive or Marxist uh, kind of worldview is is like a it, it is really a kind of everything in the past is evil and it must be destroyed in order to start history anew and usher in the new utopia. Hmm. And m my view is saying, well, that is actually the evidence for that working since Marx's time is absolutely horrific. And it always backfires. It always creates tremendous human calamities and cultural destruction. Hmm. And I don't have to say that from my perspective as an American or a European. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, when I was in Mongolia, for example, Mongolia, a little known fact, it was the first uh, satellite state of the Soviet Union, if I'm correct in my recollection. And what the Soviets did, they came out and they said, Buddhism is a backwards religion that prevents you from becoming full, good Soviet Marxist people. So we are going to burn down and destroy everything about your tradition and outlaw the practice. Yeah. Well, that caused tremendous damage to a beautiful and rich culture. 
And I, I was there, you know, in one of the museums after the fall of communism. They had, they had buried their ancient relics and texts in a barrel in the sand, and they kept it there in secret for 70 years. <laughs> and when the Soviets finally withdrew, they took it up. And they basically said, the, the, the museum curator that I talked to said, this is our patrimony. This is the only thing that we have left of our tradition that is thousands of years long. And we have to start rebuilding from here. And that's a shame. That's a real disgrace and a real shame and a real kind of cultural genocide and destruction in the name of utopia and Marxism and the new state. Uh, and, and I think that this, the same thing is not out of the question here. I mean, you know, we're doing it in a less kind of brutal and obvious way than yeah. demolishing, you know, uh, Buddhist monasteries and burning relics and outlawing the practices. Oh, but they're they're canceling more and more TV shows every day. Yeah, but you know, it it, it, yeah. it it is like some executive at NBC Universal is like telling the content manager to take you know I Love Lucy off of the 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 streaming platform. It doesn't have the same thing as the bulldozer, <laughs> yeah. um, but the the intellectual and cultural impact over time, if it aggregates in this way, um, could be analogous, not the same, but analogous. And I, I think it's a shame. I mean, I think that if you if you look at American history problems, flaws, uh, you know, mistakes. Uh, but it really has been a country that has assembled the most diverse population in world history, united it under a coherent ideology that at its inception was not perfect or well-executed or even true to its own principles, but over time moved there and got closer to there and still is getting closer to there. And, and, and my reading right now is that the kind of new racial orthodoxy um, that you see in corporate HR trainings and uh, and on the streets and uh, and in kind of uh, municipalities, kind of the, the municipalities and the roving mobs yeah. is getting us actually further away from the good parts of that tradition. And hmm. I think that you can destroy uh, and kind of restart history. But I, I don't know. I don't think that's a good place. We've We've come very far. And I think it's a huge disservice to people of all backgrounds to say, ah, let's just blow it up now and start over. Hmm. I mean, you know, you had uh, amazing people, you know, I, I had the fortune of, of making films over the years where I got to spend a lot of time years in the black community and yeah. hear their stories, hear their struggles, hear their triumphs, hear their personal histories. And, you know, one thing that stands out, and, and again, this is always risky, right? You're, you're really not supposed to even speak about kind of racial issues or stories or experiences, but uh, I'll, I'll share this. Uh, I was talking with a guy who was a, a champion swimmer. This guy is 92 years old, uh, African-American guy from, from DC. Um, and uh, this was during the kind of Obama years. And, uh, and he was an amazing guy, like a guy who at 92 was fit. He could swim. He was a gold medalist at, for his age group. And he said something to me that was really crazy and, and amazing and beautiful and tragic and heartbreaking and all these things. He said, you know, Chris, like, uh, you know, I grew up in segregation and uh, and my grandmother was a freed slave. And I remember she still lived in the house with us when I was a boy. And I remember trying to teach her how to read because she was never allowed to learn how to read. And you know what? One of my regrets to this day is that she didn't live long enough for me to teach her. And boom, that just like shatters your heart. That's like, that's a, that's an intense expression of this man's memory. 
And then he said, you know, and I grew up in segregation and Jim Crow and we couldn't do this. We couldn't do that. But we still had, you know, our great community, our great culture, our great kind of um, people that I met and grew up with. And I was able to become a, you know, a, a, a school administrator and have a great career and raise great kids. And then I went from, you know, and then, you know, we went from to the election of Barack Obama, the president at that time. And he said, I never thought I'd see the day that in my lifetime alone, I could be teaching my grandmother, who was a freed slave, to, to participating in the inauguration of America's first black president. And this is someone who speaks with authority. I mean, it just knocked me on my ass. Because I was like, that is a beautiful thing. It's tragic. Conservatives take a tragic view of history. We don't say that tradition is good in and of itself. We say tradition is flawed and... and, and, and um, and there are some tra there's many tragedies. It's defined history is defined by tragedies. But then you have that something like that as a really beautiful moment. And I, I feel like we've forgotten that. I don't know why. It feels kind of strange and disorienting and, and depressing. But that's a moment that I hold with me. And I remember and kind of remember the feeling that I got uh, listening to this man, a beautiful man. Um and just that, that story, to me, that's the American story. And it was his American story. Um, and I think that that kind of message is something that is inspiring and uniting and kind of speaks to the, like, the deepest human empathy and principles. And that, that's what I think is worth fighting for. Mm. As you're covering what you're covering, uh, what do you suggest your audience... Um, what attitude they should hold so that they don't despair when they're looking at like these different institutions, like from the federal government to Seattle, segregating people based on their race and then putting them through basically re-education and then watching like the downfall of all these cities. Like how, how do you, how do we uh, not despair? How do we hold on to hope? How do we stay healthy and, and keep our eyes on the good fight? Yeah, well, I'll go kind of from maybe the most abstract to the most concrete or personal. As um, in the abstract, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty much convinced, uh, at least kind of optimistically convinced, that we're going through something of a panic, of a moral fad. Um, I think if you look at the the curve of the kind of discourse, the use of those key terms, white supremacy and white fragility and whiteness and systemic racism, you know, it's on like a a, a huge straight up curve. And, you know, it behaves, I think, like the stock market. Whenever you have something that has that explosive a growth, um, that's kind of a moral fad or a moral trend, it's likely to then on the back end kind of collapse as people understand better uh, that this stuff isn't really substantive or persuasive or salutary in any way. Hmm. Um, so I, I think you have to kind of just brace yourself for going through this moment of like mass panic and maybe mass psychosis. Um, and then with the confidence that it will emerge on the other side as something different, but probably not tremendously worse, um, as people come to their senses, hmm. that's the abstract kind of hopeful message. Um, and then on the kind of personal and concrete level, I think that you just have to cultivate a community around you. I know that, you know, in Seattle, uh, I assembled a group of men, uh, that, you know, kind of between 25 and 45 uh and we would meet every month um we'd rent out a private room or 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 kind of 
go to some kind of cool location and have dinner and talk shop. And we were all kind of intellectually and culturally and kind of socially aligned. Did and you guys we call really... yourselves the Chads? <laughs> yeah, no, we, we didn't have a name, you know. But um, but it was just a great place for like-minded men to get together and spend time together and blow off steam and talk yeah. politics and talk openly about anything. And even just that small experience was really rejuvenating. So you could get back up and keep fighting, even in a world where you feel like you are dramatically outnumbered. Um, you'd have some kind of basic camaraderie, uh, almost like kind of military brotherhood, um, mm -hmm. where you are in it together and you can kind of help each other and support each other. And uh, I, I think that is essential. I think you have to cultivate a community around yourself. And if there's not one that exists, you have to start one. And I think that you know, what I found is that people are hungry for that. And there are a lot of dissenters in these places, hmm. um, but they are scared. And you have to kind of provide them uh, an outlet for them to um, kind of speak their minds. And then you also have to provide them with a model of courage um, hmm. so that they have the capacity to do so. Hmm. Excellent. So what's next on your plate? What are the projects that are coming up that you're allowed to disclose? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I just put out a film on homelessness in San Francisco. That's up on my Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. Uh, I'm really looking at the origins of the city's failures to uh, reduce homelessness and public disorder and public drug consumption. Um, and uh, I'm working kind of upcoming on a new film uh that uh that will be out in the next uh, six weeks or so yeah. uh, a topic uh to be announced and uh i'm also working on a series of papers where uh I'm, I'm working through a paper now on the kind of shadow justice system that's being established in seattle uh that we discussed earlier in the call yeah. and and uh i'm also working on a paper for the heritage foundation on the federal diversity and anti-bias trainings. So I've done like a huge amount of public records and freedom of information requests, um, really digging into the nitty gritty on all of this kind of racial uh, trainings at the federal level. Um, I'm cultivated about a dozen high level sources within uh, multiple branches of government. Uh, and I'm gonna be putting out an absolutely blistering and bare knuckled report exposing this, uh, raising the alarm about it, and really going on the offensive. Um, and uh, I, I think that that's really the fight that we can fight successfully right now. Um, and I'd like to just be on the forefront of that and to really, you know, go out there swinging and have the courage that, uh, that you know, that this kind of new racial orthodoxy is deeply destructive to people of all backgrounds. And there's a much better way and that we should be essentially abolishing critical race theory from the federal government. That's really my goal. Um, and uh, I, I'd love to see, you know, potentially even some legislation, um, you know, outlining, uh, outlining that policy and, and enacting that policy in the medium term. Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.